This is the Catastrophe Podcast. I'm Jill Koenig, a consultant working in high hazard industries to develop the leadership and culture needed to prevent the worst from happening. In 2017, I watched horrified as fire destroyed the tower block opposite mine. 72 people lost their lives as London's Grenfell Tower burned. I felt helpless, grief-stricken, desperately sad. Because these disasters don't just happen, we create them. That's why I wanted to make this podcast and write the book that accompanies it. To apply what I know about safety and change. To speak to other experts and frontline workers. To expose how our established ways of thinking and working cause catastrophes. And ultimately, to show how we can all prevent them if we change our approach. Brigade. Yeah, hello, hi, in the fire, it's like 16 grade in power. Sorry, is fire where? Quick, quick, quick. They're on their it's way burning. already. Yes, I know it's burning, but they are on their way. When I first moved back to the UK in 2011, I lived on the 21st floor of Grenfell Tower. I loved the views from my windows. And in 2014, moved just a short distance away to another tower, Trelec, where here in my living room, I can look out over the city and directly at the remains of Grenfell. That night, I sat and watched that building until dawn and then on into the next day, with all these thoughts going through my mind. And that was when I first met the person who's going to help guide us through this podcast series, Matthew Price. So Matthew, you're a journalist, and the day we met, you were covering the Grenfell Fire. For the BBC, yes, which is where I was working at the time. And from that moment on, we've, we've met often, haven't we, in the streets around Grenfell and in the streets around your tower block where you live now. And we've talked a lot, and we've cried a bit as well about what happened and about the aftermath of Grenfell. And we've often also talked about what could and should be done differently to stop this sort of thing happening. So which is where the idea for the podcast and the book came from. I didn't know how to help. What could I do? And then the idea came to me to try and influence policymakers and others who can genuinely bring about change. And we'll be examining how to do that in the six episodes here. We'll look at the Boeing Air Max disasters, the Costa Concordia, a cruise ship that sank off the coast of Italy. The pandemic, of course, has to feature. We'll discuss how our whole political blame culture contributes to disaster. And ultimately, we'll examine how systemic change can contribute to a safer world. But can I start you, Jill, on the fire that began all of this. And I remember in those first few hours when we met how helpless you felt about everything. So the worst disaster, industrial disaster in the UK is Piper Alpha, which was a North Sea offshore oil rig explosion that killed 167 people. And in fact, you were here at the time, we were having a conversation and I was 
looking at the fire and the, the, the one thing that is almost like ingrained in my brain is how vivid the flames were. Even nearly 20, that must have been in the afternoon. So we're kind of talking about more than 12 hours after the fire started. It's just how bright the flames were. And I kept thinking about Piper Alpha and there's a lot of analogies such as refurbishment that made the building more dangerous and the only people that survived in Piper were people that jumped off into the sea. So as much as I might have felt helpless, the helplessness came from a promise I would make sure we learned. And it was sitting there watching it and with the background of my work, knowing that the only way to make the lives lost count was to learn. If there's no change, you can't be honoring both the people that died and the communities and families that have suffered as a result. What was it like to live in that tower? I loved it. It's still one of the most beautiful places I've ever lived. So we lived on the 21st floor. We just moved back to London from living abroad and we were looking at grotty apartments. Never thought I'd live in a high rise. And then that caught my eye and walked in and, you know, the agent was showing us around. Literally walked in, looked and said, where do we sign? It was fabulous. The views were stunning. The community was amazing. We had three families on our floor. The two things that stand out for me from living on at Grenfell are the views. So the most incredible sunsets that you can imagine and the sound of children playing. The kids used to play in the lobby by the lifts. So those are the two memories, is the views and the sounds. And they became friends, the people living nearby? Frankly, not super good friends. In fact, I'm quite friendly with a lot of them now, but fabulous neighbours. You know, like we'd always take parcels for each other or, you know, Andrea, well, I always remember her bringing Keith a cake when it was his birthday. Um, the, the one that probably breaks my heart the most is um, the teenager Yassine who um, I used to speak a lot to in the lifts not a lot but we'd go up in the lifts together and he used to be super interested in my work and he wanted to have a business and he used to come and borrow our bicycle pump and one of the things in the aftermath, it took me quite a while to know who had survived and who hadn't. And finding out that Yassine and his family had died was just horrifying. Because what happened to the people on the top floors up there? Well, just purely factually is the higher up you were in the tower, the more likely you were to die. They were told to stay put and they were told that firefighters would come and get them and that didn't happen. These years on now, looking at the tower across there, what do you think when you pull the curtains in the morning and look out? It's just a symbol for me. I don't know how to say 
It used to, before the fire, it was this lovely memory of a place that I'd loved living. So it was this warm light because it's quite prominent. And now in, you know, straight after the fire and the burnt husk and now with the green hearth and the white covering, it's just a reminder every day that we have to learn. And it has been this incredible intersection for you, hasn't it, between your personal life, your home life, and your professional life? Yeah. I think one of the biggest things, so um, because professionally I work in high-hazard industries specifically to develop the culture and leadership to prevent accidents and catastrophic events in particular. So one of the big things is I had to integrate Grainful into my work and learn to talk about it and share about it because it you know while I'd been close to disasters and close to a lot of people that have experienced them this was different this was bringing everything that I did at work onto a much more personal level and is that I mean how much is that the motivation for ultimately writing your book making this podcast, I mean, what's the motivation? What are you hoping to achieve? So my experience after Grenfell and after watching us go through the pandemic and observing the world's reactions to disasters over the last four years is that our current way of thinking needs to alter if we stand a chance of preventing such catastrophes in the future. And really the why I speak publicly or have the book or have the podcast is because I don't think or hear the right conversations happening. And I've been fortunate enough to create a voice, if that makes sense. So everything, I started a blog, the blog led to the book, et cetera, et cetera, because I wanted to have different conversations and different inquiries that would lead to change. Over the next six episodes, we're going to speak to frontline workers and experts in various fields to try to tease out how we can create that change. And we're going to start today continuing to talk about fire with two people who have thought a lot about Grenfell. The first is Guillermo Rain, a professor of fire science in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at Imperial College London. His research is centered on heat transfer, combustion and fire. And then there's Diane Coyle, an economist and a former advisor to the UK Treasury. Diane co-directs the Bennett Institute for Public Policy at Cambridge University. She's also the editor of my book. But an expert in fire and an expert in economics seems a slightly strange combination. So there are two reasons for having them. Grenfell has revealed a building safety crisis. It wasn't an isolated band building. Thousands of our buildings are unsafe. And Guillermo and Diane are going to help us do two things. Firstly, understand the complexity of building safety, because it's not just about the cladding. It's not that simple. And the other thing they will help us focus on is the myth that regulations make us safe. 
We're going to start on the night of the Grainful Fire. Because while I was here watching the horror of the fire, Guillermo was with 1,000 of the world's top fire safety scientists at their annual gathering in Sweden. The whole community of fire safety scientists, we were all together in a conference, an international conference, a symposium that happens every three years, where a thousand of us meet. And we were in Lund in Sweden. And I remember I was in the hotel and someone calls me at four in the morning. It wakes me up. I look at the phone and it says Sky News. And I said, Sky News is... Right. I don't know if I was in your I was a little bit confused. Sky News is not the time to call now for an interview, obviously. I, I hang up and I woke up in the morning. And then when I put up the TV, I realized that it was Sky News trying to inform society of the horrible news that I was missing, that they were actually unfolding. And since then on, the rest of the conference was all the plenary speakers, all the, all the presentations. All of them were actually mentioned one way or another. Uh, all the multiple things that we were seeing that were horrifying us as experts that had happened in, in Grenfell. So already within hours, we, we could see prevention was breached, detection was breached, evacuation was breached, compartmentation was breached. A large number of us thought that the tower was going to collapse. It's a concrete tower from the 60s. It is not designed to sustain what we call burnout. So we, we all thought, unfortunately, that it was going to It'd be even worse that it was going to collapse. And that's the only safety layer of the six that every building has that was not breached. What a story. Um, well, I was at home and I didn't learn about it until the next day when um, the overwhelming impression is, is, is sadness and you sense the emotion of all the people um, in, in the tower affected and, and around it. So, Guillermo, specifically on catastrophic fires like that at Grainfall, what goes wrong? If we are talking about building fires and lessons learned, there is three things that I would like to highlight. One is importance. The other one is complexity. And the third one is cycles. And, and these three topics are related to le learning lessons from fire disasters. Right after the fire happens, there is an incredible amount of attention. And everybody wants to know why and how and what they can do and things like this. But then as time goes by, then the, the attention and the interest in doing something starts to decrease. And, and then there's a point where actually people literally forget that our homes, unfortunately, are flammable because we live in a flammable planet. And actually, it's a success story of engineering that in countries like the UK or United States or Europe, um, you, you can allow citizens to forget that they live in flammable environments because they are actually that safe that they forget about this. In other countries, you go to informal settlements, you go to countries where they don't have regulation of any kind about safety. They don't forget that actually a fire has struck their family literally months ago. Um, so then we have all these cycles and uh, as engineers and authorities, we have to learn from each of them and try to extract lessons. But if we do it too slowly, then there is no interest. The, the, the emphasis disappears, the politicians lose the benefits of being seen doing things when it was the time to be seen doing things. And, and then the engineers don't, might not actually end up learning how to do buildings safer because the cycle has not been taken advantage of. Can I, can I ask you specifically, Guillermo, when it comes to regulations um, and the rules that are put in place, do they keep up with the changes in the way that buildings are actually being built? 
let me tell you about the specific one that refers to your question is uh, in buildings. Everybody lives in buildings, small buildings like a house or bigger buildings like in a high-rise building. Um, and we want our buildings to be comfortable. This is where we live. This is where our, most of our lives actually happen, even if it's an office. And that means that architects and engineers and construction companies are always looking into how to make your house, your building more appealing because then you actually will be moving houses and getting houses and it brings into the economy and, and the pace of life. I typically say that the dreams of the architects are the nightmares of our engineers because they come up with these absolutely amazing ideas. As a person that I like architecture, I recognize that the ideas are beautiful, but then we have to design this to be safe to the people who are inside. And because by definition, this architect has come up with a new idea. No one knows how it responds in fire. It could be that it has no fire problems at all. It could be that it has all the fire problems in the world, and we don't know. In fire science, we are trying to learn always about a system that has just appeared, that is so appealing, that it's going to end up in the market in one or two years. And in order for us to understand the fire behavior, the fire safety, we might need five to, or a decade of time to understand. So very often we, we find ourselves that the building already has these futures, it, they already exist, and they ask us, now provide safety. It's like, but I don't even know how it behaves in fire. So, well, but it is already in the building, so we want the building to be safe. And in the case of high-rise buildings and facades and this driver, for example, for um, energy efficiency and having homes that are very appealing in the outside and making it cheaper to build higher and make it lighter. This actually has brought a set of materials that were not present maybe 40 years ago. And some of these materials we are discussing now today in a way because they are actually related to what's happening in Grenfell Tower. We're talking about the fact that polymers or plastics are now part of the walls of a building uh, for, for all the reasons uh, excluding fire safety. So fire safety has to adapt to a fact that other people wanted these materials to be in the facade. No matter the fire safety engineer has been saying, but, but wait, we don't know how they behave in fire. We don't know if it's good or bad or how bad it is. So um, from, from my perspective on the complexity issue, yes, the world's getting more complex. I mean, we, we know that, but it's, it's because of the number of interactions, because of the Internet of Things, et cetera, et cetera. So the world is just more complex because of the number of interactions. But I think... Um, the issue is you we're coming from a mindset like a bureaucratic control command mindset that doesn't fit with the level of complexity and i think in a regulatory perspective it shows up in prescriptive regulations and when you hear Guillermo speaking about the need for innovation and responding really quickly and new materials and you know environmental concerns is coming from a command and control and prescriptive regulatory mindset almost inhibits the ability to adapt to the complexity that's needed so but from my perspective we have to think differently um and i'm not sure that that's happening it's really interesting jill cuz there, there seem to be two aspects to that to me. One is about who do you want to do something and the other is about what kind of information do you have. And they they, they seem both quite relevant but also quite distinct. So uh, in the case of a high-rise building, getting one of the reasons for 
really close contact with um, residents groups is that you get information from them about what's happening inside the building. But that's different from who would you want to adapt the kinds of changes that Guillermo has been talking about in the use of materials, I think. I, th- I think, you know, one of the things that uh, both interests and frustrates me, and it goes back to what you were saying, Guillermo, around um, safety not being, or fire safety not being considered right when somebody's designing something. Because from a principle or values-based perspective, if you have life safety as a core principle, that would drive different conversations and different decisions. And it's it's shocking to me how... That doesn't seem to be the case. So, you know, you'll have lobbying around, you know, using facades for or wood, timber for building or plastics for facades because of the environmental benefits of those. But there's not a core principle at the heart of it going, is this safe is the first question. That has shocked me post-Grenfell because in high hazard industry, that's not the case is safety is absolutely a principle of operation. And that's a commercial interest because you'll lose your license to operate if if you don't operate according to that principle. So there's both a moral and a commercial aspect to that. That, that is very interesting, Jill, because I, I think the, the problem where that happened, the problem that why so many people put life safety at the bottom of a priority, why they're allowed to do that, is because people are forgetting, a lot of people have forgotten that fire is an issue 24 hours, seven days a week. Um, so you actually make the analogy, you said that this will be unacceptable in a, far, in a high hazard. And it is because living in our homes is not acceptable to be a high hazard. Um, we, we feel safe in our homes because actually in reality we are. Statistically, we are very safe in our homes from fire. I mean, as a fire engineer, you, you can imagine how it is in the house. I freak out with every single tiny little thing. Of course, the kids look at me saying, we've never seen a fire in this house. Why are you so worried about it? Because I can just see the things that can go wrong, right? They, they are very, they, in that sense, the ignorance is a bliss because they don't, they don't even know that playing with the, with the cables and things like this can lead them to this. But it, it is true that it's a pity because with the speed up and the innovation and the drive for new drivers, um, energy efficiency, climate change, environmental protection, sustainability, we actually then remain forgetting about life safety. And, and then we, we, we are reminded of this, it's too late. And that's very sad. But I wanted, because we, the topic now is regulation, I wanted to, to mention two specific characteristics of fire regulation. And not many people talk about this. One is that fire safety regulations set the minimum. They are on purpose designed to set the minimum level of safety that a building or an environment has to have. And it's so low that we engineers are actually a little bit horrified of, 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 of how low this level is. It's so low that if you have below it, it's criminally, um, you are in, in criminal breach. But there is plenty of space above that the government allows anyone to do. And the second one is that around the world, national regulations, not uh, business or private entity regulations, national regulations have a very clear objective of protecting lives. So it's, it's a safety uh, regulation. They are not aiming at protecting property at all. And this comes as a shock when we see, for example, recently, a building that was made by modular construction, it's a new type of construction, was a fire. The whole building was lost. 
I mean, the photos are absolutely horrifying. We're not used to see this unless it's in a, in a war uh, scene. And the engineers could claim success. And people were saying, how can you claim success? It's absolutely horrific. Look, your building. It says, no one died. Therefore, I comply with the regulations. And this was a successful design. And, and citizens, me included, are saying, this cannot be claimed to be a success. That is definitely a failure. Maybe a legal failure, but definitely a failure. So because, I mean, we cannot disregard protection of property so violently that actually you could have the whole building go into smoke and, and say, well, because no one dies, fine. You just raised two really interesting questions. Um, one is, what is your measure of success or your aim? And does that have more than one dimension to it? And if so, which is, must often be the case, then do you need different kinds of regulation or you know, how does that change the, the regulatory landscape? And, and the other is, how much are we willing to pay for yeah. social insurance, as you, if you like, against different kinds of crises? Which is exactly the debate that the pandemic raises, of course, because... We have run the health service um, at red-hot efficiency, and that meant that there was no buffer. There was no margin, no insurance against something like a pandemic happening. And so although people have been treated for COVID-19, loads of other treatments have been, have been cut back. And I think this is just a, a, with climate change, with um, all kinds of crises uh, potentially on the horizon, it's something that we ought to be having more of a, a public debate about. Um, I, I have a question. Uh, anything around the role of expertise in increasingly complex world? So it's kind of come out a little bit in some of the things that both of you said, but just anything specific about the really the limitations of traditional expertise um, in dealing with a complex world? The first thing that strikes me is that there's um, a kind of gap between expert input into different contexts and who's accountable for outcomes. And so we often will hold the politicians accountable and, and yet we, we look to the experts to design things. And I just wonder if there's some tension or difficulty emerging from that gap. I just literally watched it two hours ago, a really interesting talk where expertise has led to actually uh, failures and loss of life, precisely because someone was an expert and people could trust the expert actually became uh, a failure in the system. So we, we obviously, I, I value expertise. It's something that humanity has learned how to do, but it doesn't mean that it comes with you know, a semi-god status just because someone is, is an expert. So diversity of views and diversity of levels of expertise are absolutely essential and actually makes the engineering process much safer when you have diversity of views. This leads to something that is very important in fire safety engineering, which is competence, which is um, how much um, training and experience and, 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 and depth of, of knowing it is in the community. And what we see is that society thought that fire safety engineering or fire safety professionals had more competence than why actually might have. And obviously the UK, as we speak, is being put on the spotlight. But actually, as an international country, we, we train the rest of the world and the rest of the world trains us. So if the UK is not doing too well, that means the rest of the world is not doing too well. It's, it's a humanity problem uh, at this scale. And for me, something that is very important is expertise has to be addressed with diversity, competence has to be developed. But one thing that we miss, and, and I, I realize that I'm 
Matthew and Diane, we come from different backgrounds. I'm an engineer. We are not good communicators. We communicate excellent among ourselves. That's why we actually become engineers. We love talking to ourselves. No, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really sorry. You're a really good communicator, but carry on. <laughs> They're going to spell me from the field. Um, but the problem with engineering is that when, when we turn around and talking to society, we, we are catastrophic. Uh, we, we, no one understands what we're saying. We feel uncomfortable. And that means that there is this gap between what society thinks we should be doing or society thinks that we are doing and what actually we are doing and not being able to communicate it. Um, the people involved are learning of what happened, of all the bad things that are happening, is everybody in the whole planet is learning about the process of how, how it works. So the process of communication and communicating better, it goes hand by hand as well with competence and expertise. Yeah, and I think there's this thing about the um, because I'm, I'm not arguing that expertise isn't important. It's just which expertise is valued, and do you know do you know the expertise of the residents versus the expertise of a technical expert? Um, and often the the language becomes a barrier to different ways of knowing being included um, in in conversations, but. And in a, you know the the role of the media, that's a really good example of how the media can make something accessible that's formerly been inaccessible, which is I think often a role doesn't take in a long term kind of systemic um, perspective on it. Can I just ask something? Um, it strikes me quite a few of the things we talked about are based around trust. I think about the people in. Grenfell Tower, who didn't just trust that what they were being told on that night was right. They also trusted longer term that if you live at the top of a large tower block, you'll be safe in the event of something awful happening. They trusted the entire system. And I just wonder whether we all need to reassess our that trust that we put into things, be they experts or regulations or the ability of government to save us and whether that would be a fruitful way of trying to make sure there is never a catastrophic fire again. So I'll say um, a couple of things. So firstly, not everybody trusted. So, you know, residents in Greenfield raised concerns, including, you know, Eddie saying in, in his blog with France is saying that there would be a catastrophic fire or there could be a catastrophic fire. So I think there's, there's something about... Um, again, back to the notion of expertise is why those voices weren't heard because that's a pretty strong signal that all is not well. Um, but when you get into notions of which expertise is valued, those those voices, there was a justification for not hearing those voices. And in fact, I'll stop there. That's all I'll say on that. I'm happy that this actually is, is being mentioned because I didn't think about it. Um, trust, uh, I have lost trust. In, in a lot of the components and the societies and the agencies in my field. And I'm, I'm losing this trust because of what I'm learning, for example, through the inquiry. I am absolutely horrified that uh, people who I knew by, by name, uh, actually, or companies that I knew because of their products are using my experiments, that, that I cannot trust them any longer. And I don't know what it will take for them to re recreate that trust. Uh, maybe actually it's impossible now, it's irreversible. Um, but also, it's, it's the other way around in the sense that, uh, as an academic, I, I train fire safety engineers. They need to be trusted by the society. 
as engineers, we we are at the service of society. We are we are here to solve problems by society. If society doesn't trust us or doesn't trust what we do, then we are not engineers. I don't know what we're doing, but but not engineering. That will be something else. So it, it is a very important concept and has been and is damaged. Let's put it this way: is damaged every single time there is a disaster. If you look at the last four years, so we're coming up to the fourth anniversary of Greenfall. What's your perspective on how things have changed? Not on, on the specifics from me, but um, just observing that so many people are now trapped in flats they can't sell because the government's unable to decide how to resolve all of these issues and, and the costs. That that absolutely can't be helping rebuild trust in the system. And until there's clarity about that, it, it couldn't possibly happen. I, I I agree. I think we are in a runaway loss of trust. Um, uh, even my predictions uh, were not even close to what is happening. The consequences uh, seem to be growing by day instead of being decreasing. Instead of mending, uh, I feel we are still uh, losing losing parts of the system that that I, I even not even thinking that it could actually fail. So it's very important, and I don't think we are we are in the mending yet. It's a good example of how things get piled on top of each other also because in the blocks of flats where residents are now having to pay for uh, fire marshals to patrol, is that ever going to go away? Or I can't see how that can happen in the short term. So, you know, there's been another layering on of things that people have to do and it's not helping the fundamental aim of, of safety. We wanted to start with this because we have to be clear that safety is a complex issue. It's not as simple as banning materials. And also, changing regulations won't guarantee safe outcomes. And that's my whole starting point. We have to understand this. And when we do, it opens up a whole new set of areas to explore, which is what we're going to do in the next five episodes. Starting in our second one, air, where we focus on what caused the two Boeing 737 MAX planes to drop out of the sky. There's an engineering answer to that question, but it's why certain decisions were taken and the deeper systemic considerations that are most important. And I want to look closely at those. Catastrophe was hosted by Matthew Price and me, Jill Koenig, author of Catastrophe and Systemic Change. It's a Mother Come Quickly production and sponsored by my company, JMJ Associates. If you enjoyed it, do feel free to share with friends and colleagues. And of course, if you'd like to write a review, I'd love to see your thoughts.